When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. President Biden finally makes his move on student loan debt. The lead starts right now. The president coming through on a campaign promise for giving $10,000 in student loans for millions of borrowers. This hour, a response from the White House as critics, some of them even Democrats, say the move could make inflation worse and call it an insult to those who have already paid their loans. Plus, bellwether races, the Democrat pulling out a win in a battleground district. Could this set the tone for November? I'll also speak with a Florida primary winner trying to become the first member of Congress from Generation Z. And... A proposal to tackle homelessness, forcing hotels to offer up empty rooms. But how do hotel guests and owners feel? A contentious debate playing out right now in a major American city. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we start today with our Money Lead, a monumental announcement out of the White House today, affecting tens of millions of Americans President Biden laying out his decision this afternoon to cancel $10,000 in federal student loan payments for borrowers who make less than $125,000 a year and married couples who earn less than $250,000. Some Americans could see $20,000 in relief. And this move could completely wipe out student debt for one-third of borrowers. President Biden is also extending the loan repayment freeze through the rest of the year. Leading Democratic lawmakers are hailing the president's move today, calling it, quote, a giant step forward in addressing the student debt crisis. But some key parts of the president's coalition say the move does not go far enough. And some Democrats and many Republicans say this is nothing but a handout on the backs of taxpayers at a time the country cannot afford it. CNN's MJ Lee joins us now live from the White House. MJ, MJ, uh, under what authority is the president taking this unilateral action? Jake, that is a really good question with a little bit of a complicated answer. The Education Department is essentially pointing to the so-called HEROES Act, which was enacted after the September 11th attacks. Uh, And they're saying that essentially gives the Education Secretary the authority during certain periods to offer people relief from student loans. Uh, Now, this memo from the Department of Education says that these certain periods could include uh, periods like a war uh, during a military operation or a national emergency and this is the key part in the memo. It says uh, national emergency such as the present COVID-19 pandemic. So that is sort of the rationale there. Now, you can imagine that many, many people and families are going to want to try to take advantage of this announcement. And according to the administration, that process should be pretty simple. They're saying that the application should be simple and that there will be more information coming uh, in the coming coming weeks. MJ, do we know how many Americans will be eligible for this debt forgiveness. It will be tens of millions of Americans. Uh, To be more specific, the administration estimates that some 43 million borrowers will be eligible for some amount of student loan debt relief. And keep in mind, another key notable uh, number is more than 60 percent of borrowers are Pell Grant recipients, which, again, uh, means that they are going to be eligible for up to $20,000 in student loan debt relief. Now, around 20 million borrowers uh, will end up having the full balance of their debt canceled. So that 
that is going to be a big deal. Now, when we heard President Biden talking at the White House earlier today, he did make clear uh, he knows that not everybody is going to be perfectly happy with this plan. And Jay Lee at the White House for us. Thank you so much. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, Republican of Kentucky, is calling Biden's student loan forgiveness a, quote, slap in the face. He says it's an insult to families who worked and sacrificed to save for college. CNN's Melanie Zanona is here in studio with me now. Melanie, how are other Republicans reacting to Biden's announcement? Well, Republicans have really sprung into action criticizing this move. In fact, the Senate Republican Conference is already circulating talking points on the issue. And the way they're really framing this is that this is a misguided decision that's only going to add to the debt and drive up inflation. Now, that's up for debate. Some experts say it's only going to have a moderate impact on inflation. But clearly, the GOP is trying to play on some of those top concerns of voters. And then the other major point that they're trying to drive home here is that this is only going to impact a certain segment of the population, including some Americans who are well off while everyone else has to foot the bill. Um, and here is what Senate GOP leader Mitch McConnell said. He said, President Biden's student loan socialism is a slap in the face to every family who sacrificed to save her college, every graduate who paid their debt, and every American who chose a certain career path or volunteered to serve in our armed forces in order to avoid taking on debt. And so that is really the main message from Republicans, and it's a message they are united in, Jake. What about Democrats on the Hill? Do they think this is a good proposal, a good plan? Do they think it's going to give them a boost in the midterms? They're actually much more divided. So you have some Senate Democrats and Senate House Democrats who are saying that this is going to send the wrong message. They are criticizing the move, trying to put some distance between themselves and the decision. That includes Tim Ryan. He's a congressman who's running in Ohio for Senate. He said he's worried about the impact that's going to have on Americans who chose not to go to college and saying it's unfair. But then you have some progressives who say this move doesn't go far enough and that their word is actually going to depress voter turnout in the midterms. But Jake, I would say for the most part, Democrats realize that this is another campaign promise that Biden delivered on. They say this is a victory in a string of recent legislative wins. And even Chuck Schumer and Elizabeth Warren put out a joint statement saying this is going to be a giant step forward in addressing the student loan debt crisis. Interesting. Okay, Melanie Zanona, thank you so much. Let's bring in White House Senior Advisor for Public Engagement, Keisha Lance Bottoms, the former mayor. Um, Let me start with the fact that uh, Wharton estimates that this plan is going to cost somewhere between $300 billion and $980 billion over 10 years. Um, what is the actual number, do you think, and, and how does this get paid for? Well, what we know is that um, the president has done a very in-depth analysis in looking at whether or not the country can afford um, to give this relief to borrowers across this country. And what we know is that nearly 45 million people, if they take advantage of this program, will be eligible for loan forgiveness. That will be $10,000 for borrowers who are not Pell Grant eligible and up to $20,000 or $20,000 for those who are Pell Grant eligible. So this is a huge boost to many across the country who have been looking for some relief in the midst of this pandemic and the president has kept his commitment. So in terms of the numbers, I will defer to the president's economic advisors in terms of those concrete numbers. But what we know for many families across the country, this is much needed relief and very much appreciated. But am I correct in in assuming that there isn't a a pay for mechanism because President Biden, this is a campaign promise, but President Biden also made the campaign promise uh, that everything he proposed 
uh, would be uh, would be paid for. That w- that was an item uh, that Jason Furman, who chaired the National Economic Council under President Obama, Obama cited uh, in a in a Twitter thread slamming this move. He said this is all quote pouring roughly half trillion of dollars on ga- of gasoline on the inflationary fire that is already burning. He called it reckless. What what do you say to Jason Furman? Well, there's a reason that President Biden has taken his time in making this decision, Jake. As you know, there were many people who wanted him to make a decision immediately. But the president has been very deliberate in consulting with his economic advisors and making sure that the country could afford to give this relief to borrowers. And what we know is that there are many people who have borrowed money, uh, many people who have, have worked really hard to to pay for college and student loan debt is something that has just saddled millions of people across America. And this is a game changer for many families across America. What we know is that even with the $10,000 in relief, that there are many people who will have their student loans completely wiped out. That is huge. That is significant for families across this country. And I know that the president has been very deliberate in making this decision and making sure that this is not something that will be a burden to taxpayers across America, but this is something that will benefit students and families across this country. But because there isn't a mechanism to pay for it, uh, Wharton, I think, estimates this is is going to cost every taxpayer $2,000. And I think one of the criticisms from Congressman Tim Ryan, uh, the Democrat who's, who's running for Senate there, is that ultimately this is going to me, be, uh, mean that some people who make under $100,000 a year are going to be paying off the loans of people who make uh, six figures, because the, the ceiling for this is $125,000 for an individual, $250,000 for a couple. I mean, isn't that just true? Isn't Tim Ryan's ob- uh, objection to this accurate that that you're going to have working class people who didn't go to college paying for uh, loans for people who make six figures? Well, the irony of that, Jake, is that you have Republicans across this country who are criticizing this, but these are the same people who've given billions of dollars in tax cuts to corporations who run up the deficit in this country, and they weren't concerned about everyday working people then. And so the president Um, has taken a huge step. Um, I would venture to say probably one of the biggest steps in the history of our country to make sure that students are able to have a fair chance of starting starting their careers, of, of starting families, of being able to buy houses without being saddled with student loan debt. What we know is that the cost of education in this country has gone up significantly over the past several decades. And that we also know uh, that just um, finishing high school is often not enough. And so for the 45 million borrowers across this country, this is significant relief. And when you have that much relief for millions of people across this country, then it benefits everyone in this country, whether you are a Democrat or Republican. And I would venture to say that many of these borrowers, this 45 million uh, people who will be eligible, are probably um, uh, independents, Republicans, and Democrats. So it's going to benefit the entire country. Yeah, I wasn't talking about Republican criticism, though. I was talking about Congressman Tim Ryan, who's a who's a, a union Democrat from Ohio. But let me move on, because NAACP President Derek Johnson, he's been critical of this plan from a different direction. 
Uh, ahead of the formal announcement, he wrote on Twitter, quote, the president's decision on student debt cannot become the latest example of a policy that has left black people, especially black women, behind. This is not how you treat black voters who turned out in record numbers and provided 90% of their vote to once again save democracy in 2020, unquote. How, how do you respond to Mr. Johnson? Well, what I would say, and, and my apologies when I, I misspoke um, uh, regarding Tim Ryan, there are a number of unions who are also supportive of this action. Um, but also, as it relates to Derek Johnson, um, I have a great deal of respect for J- Derek Johnson and his leadership of the NAACP. But I can tell you, as someone who was Pell Grant eligible, who received Pell Grants in college, um, who had a significant amount of student loans, this relief would have been a game changer for me. And I know that it is for families across this country, for African-Americans across this country. So I know that there's so many people who um, were hoping uh, that there may have been even more relief, but you have to start somewhere. And where the president has started is with this $10,000 in relief for borrowers, up to $20,000 if you are Pell Grant eligible. And we know that many Black and brown students across America are Pell Grant eligible. All right, Keisha Lance Bottoms, thank you so much. Good to see you again. Really appreciate your time today. Thank you. Coming up next, I'm going to speak with a 25-year-old Afro-Cuban from Florida who won his primary last night and could be well on his way to becoming the first Gen Zer in Congress. Plus, a show of support from the West as Ukraine hits the six-month mark of Russia's unprovoked brutal invasion. And just in, an internal memo from the Justice Department that may explain why then-Attorney General Bill Barr decided to not charge former President Donald Trump in the Russia investigation. Stay with us. This just into CNN, the Justice Department has just released an internal memo commissioned by former Attorney General Bill Barr, which lays out the reasoning Barr says he used when deciding not to charge his boss, then-President Trump, in the Robert Mueller Russia investigation. Let's bring in CNN senior justice correspondent Evan Perez. Evan, now, now we had previously uh, seen a redacted version uh, of this memo, uh, and it shows Barr broke with Mueller when making this decision. Yeah, that's right, Jake. And I'll show you just a portion of that's what— That's the redacted version? This is the redacted version, and this is what it looked like before. And uh, they've now released the entire memo— uh, that we can now see what was going on. The, 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 the courts have been really critical of the Justice Department and of, uh, specifically of Bill Barr, saying that uh, this memo was really a, an academic exercise, that it was a thought experiment because he had already decided that he was not going to charge the former president, then the sitting president, with obstruction of justice. Now, Mueller cataloged a, a number of instances where he believed that uh, the president could be charged with obstruction of justice, but he left it up to the attorney general to make that final decision. Uh, in the end, what you see in this memo is uh, a discussion of various instances, including uh, this one, uh, if you remember the story of, of Don McGahn uh, being uh, asked by the president to deny that he ever asked or, or ordered the firing of Robert Mueller, the special counsel. Which was a lie. Which was, right, not true. Uh, you go through the, this, uh, this analysis in this, in this memo, which basically kind of comes up with different excuses for why Trump didn't really mean what he said. Uh, in the end, what you see in this memo is that Bill Barr and, and uh, his aides have decided that because there was no evidence 
enough to bring uh, charges related to collusion, right, between the Trump campaign and the Russians, mm -hmm. there could be no obstruction of justice. That's the bottom line. That is basically what they base the entire memo on. And then they go through uh, a number of pages describing various reasons as to why this could not be a decision they could stand behind. All right, Evan Perez, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Coming up next, candidates trying to capitalize today on their big primary wins in key states, including a 25-year-old trying to become the first Gen Zer in Congress. I'm going to talk to him next. back with our politics lead. Some of the final pieces of the midterm puzzle have fallen into place and Democrats contend they see clear signs of momentum heading into November. The party is pointing to especially to a special election in New York's 19th congressional district where Democratic candidate Pat Ryan prevailed last night after casting his campaign as a referendum on Roe, as in Roe v. Wade. The election came just three weeks after voters in Kansas shut down a ballot measure that would have allowed the state to ban abortion. As CNN's Athena Jones reports for us now, Democrats believe this is further proof that the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade is shaping up to be a powerful motivator for their base and perhaps winning over some wavering Republicans. We have to keep fighting. Abortion rights taking center stage in a special election in upstate New York. Democrat Pat Ryan won in this swing district after billing the race as a referendum on Roe v. Wade, following the Supreme Court decision ending the constitutional right to an abortion. Mark Molinaro and the Republicans are too extreme on women's rights. Ryan's victory offering an encouraging sign for Democrats hoping to use the battle over abortion rights to motivate voters in November. We got in this race because the foundations of our democracy were and remain under direct threat. In New York City, Democrat Jerry Nadler's primary win in the newly drawn 12th district spelled an end to the congressional career of his fellow 15-term representative, Carolyn Maloney. The longtime allies forced to compete when a messy redistricting process combined their districts. Carolyn Maloney and I have spent much of our adult lives working together to better both New York and our nation. I speak for everyone in this room tonight and I thank her for her decades of service to our city. And in Florida... What a night! Democrats nominated a former Republican, Charlie Crist, to take on Governor Ron DeSantis, a fundraising juggernaut who has pushed through a conservative agenda and is widely viewed as a potential GOP presidential contender in 2024. We will never, ever surrender to the woke agenda. Florida is the state where woke goes to die. Chris, who has criticized his rival as a bully, vowing to shatter any White House dreams. If you want to help Joe Biden get a second term, we need to shut Ron DeSantis down in Florida now. Democrat Val Demings won a chance to challenge Republican Marco Rubio for his Senate seat in a state that's been trending red. I stand before you tonight believing uh, in the promise of America. She's been there for six years, and she's voted with Nancy Pelosi 100% of the time. 100%. And CNN has not yet called the race for the Democratic nomination in New York's 10th congressional district. That's the new district made up of lower Manhattan and parts of Brooklyn, where Dan Goldman, a former Trump impeachment lawyer, is in the lead. But his closest competitor, State Assemblywoman Yulee New, is vowing she won't concede until every vote is counted. Jake. Athena Jones in New York. Thank you so much. And we're going to talk to Congressman-elect Ryan 
in the next hour. But let's talk to someone else right now. Uh, another uh, winner last night, Maxwell Frost, the CNN uh, projected the CNN desk projected uh, that he will be the Democratic nominee for Florida's 10th congressional district, which is a strong Democratic district in Orlando. Uh, Maxwell, first of all, congratulations. Um, if elected, uh, you could be the first member of Generation Z to serve in Congress for people who aren't familiar with your biography. You're 25. You're a community activist. You worked for March for Our Lives, uh, the, the pro-gun control group, but you left that job to run for Congress uh, and you drove an Uber to help pay the bills. Tell me how your experience will, will inform your time in Congress. Well, thank you for having me on, Jenk. My experience is going to inform my time in Congress because I've been organizing for the past decade. I've seen how gun violence has ravaged our communities firsthand and understand the urgency surrounding the issue and truly believe that we need to work to have a Congress that looks like the country. And yes, that means in race, but it also means in age and it also means in life experiences. You know, we need more teachers, more nurses, more organizers running for office to represent the community they're in. And as someone who's been on the front lines of things like Amendment 4 here in Florida, um, on the front lines of working to end gun violence both nationally and here in the state, um, I am ready to take that experience to Congress, take that urgency to Congress, and fight for the world that we all deserve. So President Obama was a community organizer, and he was mocked at the time for it, but he was a successful two-term president. Was he an inspiration at all? He was. Um, he's actually one of the people that really got me into politics, and a lot of it had to do with me turning on that TV, sitting next to my dad, um, who got me into politics as well, and seeing someone that looked like me on TV. I remember the way I felt when I first saw President Obama speak and said, wow, I'd love to grow up to one day communicate in a way that makes people feel the way I'm feeling right now. Democrats have control of the House, Senate, and White House right now. Um, they have not been able to deliver some of the big ticket items that you've campaigned on and, and will continue to campaign on, like the Green New Deal uh, or Medicare for All. Um, so why should voters think that you going to Congress can change that? Well, it has to be about the fight, you know, and we're very serious and real with voters here. You know, what I tell folks is I will be one of many vote voices in Congress. And what I can promise is what I'm going to fight for and how hard I'm going to fight for it. You know, I truly believe that part of the reason why there's so much voter apathy is because voters have been lied to for generations. Politicians saying, elect me and this will happen tomorrow or when I get in the office. Um, and we don't do that. We're honest with people. We talk about the fact that I am a piece of a bigger puzzle and that for us to get things like Medicare for all, for us to get to a place where everybody has health care, where we're protecting our environment and our climate, we can't just elect one member of Congress. It has to be many members of Congress and it has to be people on the state and local level. And that's why I'm looking forward to as a member of Congress outside of D.C., working to build power here in Florida, ensuring that we're keeping our majority, getting good Democrats elected up and down the ballot so we can work together to provide for the American people and folks here in our state. I don't, I'm sure I don't need to tell you this afternoon, President Biden announced that the federal government's going to forgive $10,000 in student loan debt for those who make uh, less than $125,000 a year. The NAACP is out there saying that's not nearly enough. In a CNN opinion piece, NAACP uh, leaders wrote, quote, Black Americans have been disproportionately devastated by student loan debt. Canceling just $10,000 of debt is like pouring a bucket of ice water on a forest fire. It hardly achieves anything, only making a mere dent in the problem. What do you think about what the president did today? 
I think it's a great step forward, but I completely understand what many advocates on NAACP are saying. More has to be done. But as an organizer, I really see this opportunity um, as a way to change hearts and minds, to bring more people in the fold, to fight to cancel student debt. And, you know, a lot of folks uh, blame our generation and say it's because we're living beyond our means. But we know the truth. It's not because we've lived beyond our means. It's because we've been denied the means to live. And that's why we need, uh, you know, a diversity of opinion, thought, experiences, and age in Congress, because I understand the urgency as it relates to student debt. But this is a good step forward. And when I'm in Congress, I'm going to fight to ensure that we can do even more um, to ensure that people have relief that they need so they can live their lives um, without the shackles of debt. I don't blame Generation C. Maxwell, let me just give you a little secret. It's all the fault of the boomers. Let me just tell you that. The boomers ruined everything. Take it from a member of Generation X. Congratulations on your victory. Maxwell Frost, we'll talk to you in the future. Thank you so much, Jake. Coming up next, what we're learning about an attack at a train station in Ukraine as Russia's invasion hits the six-month mark. Stay with us. striking show of Western support for Ukraine tops our world lead today as the nation's Independence Day and the sixth month of Russia's brutal attack coincide. President Biden says Ukraine has inspired the world as he commits to the largest U.S. aid package for Ukraine yet, plus a surprise visit to Kiev by British Prime Minister Boris Johnson, a freedom parade in Berlin, and giant Ukrainian flag raised at European Union headquarters in Brussels. As Ukrainians mark this day, CNN's Sam Kiley is in Ukraine, where Putin's carnage continues. And President Zelensky says a Russian strike killed at least 22 people at a train station. Dawn, Ukrainian Independence Day outside Kharkiv. Marking 31 years of freedom from the Soviet Union, but not from Russia. Flags, but not people, are out in Kharkiv, marking six months since Russia's invasion amid fears of renewed attacks on cities here. And the threat became real with a brutal strike on a train station. There are at minimum 15 dead and 50 wounded. Rescue workers are on site. The number of dead may increase. Vladimir Putin assumed that Zelensky's government would be swiftly toppled in a Russian onslaught. Many in the West agreed with him. We were filled with foreboding because we just did not see how this innocent and beautiful country could repel an attack by more than 100 battalion tactical groups when the suffering and the casualties would be so immense. But you did. Russians were held up in their assault on Kyiv, then driven back. Their retreat from the capital revealing atrocities in Irpin and Butcher. Switching tactics back to the 1940s, Russia gave up on the capital to focus on breaking Ukraine's national will with wholesale bombardments of cities, concentrating on Kharkiv, Mariupol. Millions fled to safety outside the country overland, clogging roads and railways. Led by the US, Ukraine's allies eventually sent better artillery. Then rocket launchers, drones and shared vital intelligence. Too late to help save Mariupol, but new weapons have slowed the Russian advance in much of the east. Where soldiers now refer to fighting in towns like Sverodonetsk as a meat grinder. 
massive amounts of American money and equipment, fulsome support from countries like the United Kingdom have contributed to Ukraine's successes on the battlefield. But they're still not getting the strategic weapons that they need. Fast jets, long-range rockets, killer drones. Without them, Ukrainians now face a crippling war along fixed front lines. Not a victory Putin would want, but one he might accept to prevent democracy that's taking root on his doorstep in Ukraine spreading into his own home. Now, Jake, of course, uh, we'll recall six months ago, the Putin excuse for invading Ukraine was to try to prevent it joining NATO. Uh, that was a bit of a fig leaf at the time, and it's even more of a fig leaf now, because, of course, NATO members are getting closer and closer, many of them even signing bilateral agreements uh, for defence and uh, uh, other training programmes for Ukraine. So it's definitely backfired on Putin. Sam, despite uh, recently announced Western assistance, Ukraine is still very worried about international fatigue. Uh, when we were in Ukraine in April, uh, we went to Borodyanka, that's a small town just northwest of Kiev, and, and we saw these horrifying scenes, homes leveled, possessions lost forever, Ukrainians taking stock of the damage, bodies buried underneath rubble. How are Ukrainians trying to keep these continued atrocities top of mind? For the rest of the world? Well, I think one of the most active elements of that has been the president of Ukraine himself, Volodymyr Zelensky, who has a relentless campaign of engagement with the outside world. He's regularly lecturing at universities, speaking to parliaments, he's addressed Congress, of course, giving interviews. His ministers have given interviews. His own defense minister spoke to me yesterday, drawing our attention once again to this problem of fatigue. And I think the other side of it is that tragically and catastrophically, obscenely even, the Russians keep putting these issues back on the agenda. For example, today with the murder of at least 22 people in a, a strike against a civilian railway line, Jake. That's right. As you mentioned in your report, Zelensky says that strike on a train station killed at least 22 people in eastern Ukraine. Are people in Kiev on edge about what might happen there? It's very interesting indeed. Kiev, actually, over the last, uh, and I've been coming and going from here for five months so far this year, the city a few weeks ago would have felt abnormally normal given the level of war and conflict going on in the east. But in the last few days, there's definitely an air of tension. Uh, there's definitely more reaction on the ground to people, to, of people to the air raid sirens. They're less used to hearing them because of the higher threat over this Independence Day celebrations. All right, CNN Sam Kiley in Kiev, <clears throat> Ukraine. Thank you so much. Retired Major General Spider Marks uh, joins me now at the Magic Wall. Uh, Spider, uh, thanks so much uh, for joining us. So let's start with the fact uh, that Russia has a heavy presence uh, in the areas in red here on the map. And, and the maps looked like this for some time now. Yeah, well, they really have. If we, if we look at it right now, clearly what you see is they've had this presence in the vicinity of Kharkiv all the way down into the Crimea and over here to Kherson. Obviously, Odessa still remains open, and that's absolutely necessary. Let's go back to the start of all this on day three of the war. As you can see, there were three, four major avenues of approach into Ukraine right here, and then clearly in an effort to reinforce the Donbass, and then up from Crimea. The intent being is to get up to the Dnieper River and then advance after they took Kiev, and then maybe create this rump of Ukraine over here. 
that this might have been the advance. But what really happened, let me show you what was really dangerous at one point. If we can see March 13th, Jake. Yeah. So we're into this thing about a month. Kiev is really at risk. You've got these two incredible pincer movements that are coming in, and that's when the Ukrainians really lit it up, became incredibly creative in the way that they were fighting the Russians. That really brought us back to this, where the Russians said, we can't make this happen. We're going to have to concentrate down here in the Donbass area. Interesting. Very interesting. I want to talk to the, to the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, if we can, because Zelensky says, quote, Russia has put the world on the brink of uh, radiation catastrophe. Uh, a nuclear expert tells CNN that significant damage is actually unlikely. There are 15, 15 reactors yeah. in Ukraine. How, how is Ukraine protecting these resources? Yeah, what most folks don't understand is the number of nuclear facilities that are there. As you can see them, they're highlighted here. And six at the Zaporizhia facility, which is the one that's been under focus, where there's been Russian control, but it's been very haphazard in terms of that. And right, but they've also been in there firing out completely. from there as almost tempting the Ukrainians to, to bomb their own nuclear power plant. Which is what the Russian intent has been all along. So what has happened is clearly Chernobyl has been inactivated for years. These are safe because the Ukrainians still own them. This is the area that causes the greatest concern. Um, and then finally, let's zoom out to the bigger picture, Europe and NATO. Right. What has happened, which is really remarkable. So here's Ukraine here. Yeah. What is really remarkable is that NATO has held, held together so incredibly well. We've got 30 members right here. We've got two more with Sweden and Finland that are coming in. A total of 32 countries will be in NATO. Every one of these nations has a thousand different things that really motivate their national security interests. They're holding together because of Ukraine. That's what's most remarkable. But as we progress through time, obviously the fissures and the fractures will become increasing as a result of the winter that needs to be addressed. And what everybody wants, Nord Stream open back up full so that everybody can get the oil, and then Nord Stream 2 into northern Germany should be opened up as well as what NATO is concerned about. All right, retired General Major uh, uh, Spider Marks, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Uh, coming up next, a judge's ruling blocks one of the few options the Biden administration had to try to protect emergency abortion procedures. Stay with us. In our health lead today, a major setback for the Biden administration as it tries to protect abortion rights. A federal judge in Texas has blocked guidance from the Department of Health and Human Services to guidance that required emergency medical responders to provide abortion services in life-threatening situations for women. CNN's Ed Lavendera is in Dallas, Texas for us. Ed, what does this mean for emergency medical responders in Texas? Well, many of these responders have been uh, chilled by the events of the la of the summer as uh, the Supreme Court has struck down Roe v. Wade. Uh, this is the Biden administration trying to find a way in some small way to protect abortion rights. But uh, what is at the heart of all of this is that uh, after the Supreme Court's decision earlier this summer, uh, the Biden administration put out guidance through the Department of Health and Human Services saying that uh, through the uh, caveat in, the, in, a, in a healthcare law that would require medical providers across the country to provide medical emergency care uh, for abortion services if the mother's life is at risk. The state of, uh, of Texas sued, led by Republican Attorney General Ken Paxton, um, to, to block this guidance. Um, and this federal judge has now agreed. What is important also to point out, Jake, is that 
the state of Texas abortion trigger law goes into effect tomorrow on Thursday. So starting tomorrow, essentially all abortions are banned only in the case where a mother's life is in jeopardy. Jake? What does the Biden administration have to say about this judge's ruling? Well, the uh, Biden administration described the ruling as wrong, uh, backwards, and says this will put uh, the uh, life of women across the country at risk. And as I mentioned, you know, this is one of the few things the Biden administration has been able to do to try to protect abortion rights uh, on any kind of level uh, across the country. So this will not have uh, just uh, uh, serious effects here in Texas, but across the country as well. What's the next step? Well, this is uh, the, the, the guidance has been halted. So I presume this lawsuit will continue uh, to make its way through the system. And then uh, there are other states that are, are going through uh, these these different different laws, as, as we well know. And as we've covered the abortion issue, um, uh, the, the question of abortion is left up to states. So, uh, you know, this is also uh, playing out in several states in, in the West. So all of this guidance is really uh, kind of be, the, the effects of this aren't uh, totally uh, certain at, at this point as it continues to make its way through different states that are at different levels of passing abortion restrictions or not passing bo- abortion restrictions. All right, Ed Lavendera, thank you so much. Coming up, uh, Republican Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida with a rather low blow for a member of the Biden administration. Someone needs to grab that little elf and chuck him across the Potomac. Who was the governor referring to as a little elf? That's coming up. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, it could be a medical breakthrough for memory loss, zapping people's brains with weak electrical currents. What this might mean for Alzheimer's and dementia patients coming up. Then, can one city government force every hotel to give their empty rooms to people forced to live on the streets? It's just, it's insane. Um, it, it isn't going to solve the problem. A look at the fight playing out in the City of Angels. And leading this hour, the Justice Department has less than 24 hours to lay out which parts of the Mar-a-Lago search affidavit it wants redacted. The DOJ argued the entire affidavit should not be unsealed because it would put aspects of the investigation, the criminal investigation, at risk. However, last week, U.S. Magistrate Judge Bruce Reinhardt said that based on the information he had, he believed parts of the affidavit could be revealed to the public. We're going to start our coverage with CNN's Evan Perez. Evan, that deadline fast approaching for the DOJ. Are we expected to hear any guidance on what the Justice Department insists needs to stay redacted? It's unlikely, Jake. We uh, are expecting that the Justice Department is going to file this document under seal for the judge. And we're, we're likely to see them uh, argue that as much of this as possible needs to be kept secret, in part because they say that there's sensitive uh, information about about witnesses in particular that they're very concerned about, uh, and of course details about this investigation that they do not want uh, the persons who are the subjects of it, obviously the the former president and any others, uh, to know about just yet. So the question is, you know, what possibly could be released that would at least give the public a little bit more information about why this extraordinary uh, search was taken and that would satisfy the Justice Department to protect its investigation, Jake. There's another court deadline in this Trump documents investigation. Trump's legal team has until Friday to explain to another federal judge why they are searching for a special master who would you know, uh, serve as somebody to go through the materials before handing them over to the Justice Department. 
Yeah, the judge basically told the, 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 Trump, the, the, the Trump team that you need to come back and really explain to me why, first of all, you're even coming to me and not to the other judge, the judge that you just spoke about, who is overseeing the, the issue of, of the affidavit. Uh, the judge wants the Trump team to explain uh, what relief are they seeking, you know, what exactly are they asking her to do, and really, uh, you know, to, to, to explain fully what, the, what case law uh, supports what they're asking for. Again, they're asking for a special master, a third party, Jake, to oversee these records that the FBI has been looking at now for two weeks. The question is why they took this long and whether it's really too late for the judge to intervene. And, and also, uh, Senator Lindsey Graham, Republican to South Carolina, he's asking a Georgia federal court to limit the topics that he'll be questioned about in this Fulton County, Georgia investigation into Donald Trump and others meddling, trying to overturn the 2020 election results in Georgia. What do we know about Senator Graham's request? Well, well Senator Graham is, is arguing, Jake, that under the speech or debate clause, this is the, uh, the clause of the Constitution that protects uh, lawmakers from a certain judicial proceedings simply because of their doing their legislative duties. He says that these uh, conversations he had with Georgia lawmakers uh, after the 2020 election uh, were protected under speech or debate. Uh, obviously, Fina Willis, the, uh, the, the district attorney in, in Atlanta there in, the, in Fulton County, says that there are important parts of these conversations that possibly go to crimes that she's investigating and therefore sh are not shielded by uh, this, uh, th this clause of the, of the Constitution. You remember, of course, uh, Jake, that, that, that a judge had previously ordered this and has been asked to, to take a, a second look to see whether some parts of this need to be, to be changed. All right, Evan Perez, thanks so much. Joining us now to discuss California Congresswoman Zoe Lofgren. She's a member of the January 6th Select House Committee. Congresswoman, uh, the Justice Department has until noon, noon tomorrow to recommend to a judge what they want redacted from that affidavit uh, used to show probable cause for the search of Mar-a-Lago for all those top secret, highly uh, confidential documents. Uh, DOJ previously said they're worried about releasing the affidavit because it could compromise their ongoing criminal investigation. Um, what do you think about the affidavit being released? Well, you know, it's not within the purview, obviously, of the January 6th committee, but just as a lawyer and member of the Judiciary Committee, uh, I think the Justice Department has uh, some merit to their argument. Certainly, there has been intimidation of witnesses. Uh, you can outline the entire case uh, in an affidavit, and if it's prematurely released, um, it would disrupt the case. So the, the court has to balance really an important public a need to know what was behind this without uh, breaking up the uh, DOJ's uh, investigation. I guess to some extent, uh, I think the judge may defer to DOJ because it's not just a question of what, but when. And uh, certainly this will be able to be released at some point, perhaps not tomorrow. These documents uh, that Trump had at Mar-a-Lago, we should know they weren't just classified. And yes, there's a lot of overclassification by federal governments in general. They were top secret documents. Some were labeled as sensitive compartmented information, special access programs material, which is one of the highest levels of classification you can have. Give us an idea of what kinds of information are in documents labeled that. I know you don't know or couldn't say, even if you did know, what these what's in these documents, but what are we talking about? Well, I, you know, I don't know what's in these documents, but those types of classifications 
relate to things that are really quite sensitive. Uh, for example, we might, uh, as a nation, have access to information. We may be using technology. There could be uh, human embedded spies that are providing information. And if that uh, came out, it would be very damaging and even dangerous when it comes to the human intelligence and also disrupt uh, important technological advantages the country might have. Obviously, nuclear secrets is something that's very important. You know, when you go in to these skiffs, and I've done it many times, I mean, you have to basically take off your 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 iWatch, you have to leave all your electronics behind. You can't uh, bring anything in there. And it's it's shielded from all kinds of electronic uh, spying. And you're not permitted to ever discuss uh, what you see or hear in those classified uh, settings. So uh, a setting that is less um, secure, I mean, basically a storage room off the pool doesn't really meet that standard that all the rest of us have to live with when we look at this sensitive information. In that letter from May, the National Archives uh, wrote that they wanted to, quote, conduct an assessment of the potential damage resulting from the apparent manner in which these materials were stored and transported and take any necessary remedial steps, unquote. If this uh, intelligence community assessment finds that former President Trump compromised national secrets or classified information, um, do you think he should potentially face charges? Well, that's speculative at this point. I mean, I don't know uh, what they would find, and it doesn't serve any particular good purpose for me to be guessing about what the DOJ should do. I think to some extent we have to have a little patience here and see um, what is found, what damage, if any, has been done. Uh, obviously, it's urgent that this analysis be done if, for example, uh, human intelligence sources were compromised, those people could be in severe danger. So this needs to be done promptly, and uh, I think we'll, we'll see in due course what the DOJ thinks is appropriate. Obviously, nobody's above the law in this country, including ex-presidents. Um, so with that in mind, I assume the DOJ will proceed accordingly. Turning to the January 6th investigations, your committee left open the idea to holding public hearings in September. Um, where does that stand? Uh, what might we hear in those hearings if they were to happen? Well, as you, I think you know, we're working through the summer. Uh, not only the, the staff, but the members we meet remotely. Um, I, I, I've made a practice of not getting out ahead of the, the chairman and the vice chairman, chairwoman, uh, in terms of announcing hearings, but I think the chairman and Ms. Cheney did indicate we will have at least one hearing in September, and uh, we hope that will be informative. I think the other hearings have brought new information uh, forward for the public to review. Oh, yeah, lots of information. We, we have learned a lot. Congresswoman Zoe Lofgren of California, thank you so much for your time today. I want to bring in George Conway. He's a conservative uh, attorney. And George, uh, Trump's legal team has until Friday to clarify their request for a special master to, to suss out this information. We, we saw a special master appointed after the FBI searched Michael Cohen's home and office, and the same for Rudy Giuliani after the FBI, FBI searched his Manhattan home. Is it a strange request? It's a, it's a bizarre request here for a number of reasons. One is this, there's no reason to believe that there is any 
attorney-client privilege here. The only privilege that could possibly apply is executive privilege, and the executive privilege doesn't apply against the executive. It's These documents belong to the executive branch. They belong to the United States of America, and Donald Trump can't assert an executive branch privilege as a former president against the current executive branch. And beyond that, um, it's bizarre in terms of its timing. This search warrant was executed, what, Two, two, two weeks and two days ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, it's, it's inconceivable that, given the importance of the investigation, the FBI has not already gone through all of those boxes that the so-called taint team that's supposed to cite, uh, uh, um, call out anything that's not relevant to the investigation. So, I mean, the, 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 the horse has left the barn. And, and there's really no point to the, to the request for a special master. So you can't claim executive privilege if you're no longer the president? Well, it's an open question whether a former president over the decision of a current president could assert executive privilege for documents against another, against Congress, for example. Mm-hmm. Or it, 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 that's, that's totally different here. These documents belong to the executive branch. Trump took them. He stole them, in effect. He, he wasn't authorized to have them. Um, he has the right to look at them under the Presidential Records Act, but only when they are in, uh, the, the, under, the, under circumstances that are secure if, they're, if, they're, if they are um, sensitive documents, and only in, when they're in the custody of the National Archives and Records Administration, which is what, you know, when President Obama wanted to look at documents there, he would, he would have to go to NARA. And that's, that's what all presidents have done in the past since 1981 when the Presidential Records Act came into force. Let's talk about uh, the Justice Department. That They have a deadline to recommend to the judge what they want redacted from the affidavit to, to seize the documents uh, from Mar-a-Lago and to search Mar-a-Lago. Um, if you were the DOJ, would you ask for it to be uh, heavily redacted, uh, lightly redacted? I mean, there, is, there are two competing issues here. The public's right to know and the idea of, you know, such an extraordinary search for an extraordinary action by Donald Trump. Uh, but then also, um, you know, the right to preserve information for their criminal investigation that they don't want to get uh, and let any witnesses or p- potential defendants know about. Yeah, it's hard. That's a hard question to answer in the sense that we don't really know what's behind the curtain. But surely, um, given this this person's, Donald Trump's tendency to try to influence witnesses and intimidate witnesses, we certainly don't, I think the Justice Department is going to certainly uh, try to get redacted basically the entire story of who told them what um, about, you know, who the sources are for their information about the fact that, the, that he did retain some documents even after he had given some back or after the NARA had taken some back. And um, that, that stuff has to uh, obviously goes to the, to the security of the investigation, and they're not going to allow that. They're going to, they would take that up on appeal. Um, that said, I mean, there are some things that are going probably in the affidavit, just guessing, um, that will be, uh, if, you know, that, that, they, that don't need to be blacked out, like the address of Mar-a-Lago. Right. Um, these letters, with the, the, some of the correspondence uh, between, that has already been released um, between the Trump uh, teams, to tr- the Trump people and NARA, um, maybe maybe that could be uh, left un, un, unblacked out. But mostly, um, it's hard to just just guessing. Mostly, it's going to be hard for them to justify. It's going to be hard for the judge to ju- uh, justify overruling the, the Department of Justice's judgment on what is sensitive. Yeah, in the midst of a criminal investigation. Right. Absolutely. George Conway, thanks so much. Always good to have you here. Could 
Abortion rights give Democrats the momentum they need to hold on to the House and Senate come November. We're going to talk to the Democratic primary winner who made abortion a central central piece of his campaign, special election winner, I should say. Then, on average, more than 60,000 people are homeless and more than 20,000 hotel room cities uh, sit empty uh, each night in Los Angeles. The controversial proposal that would lower both of those numbers. Stay with us. We're back with our politics lead with just over two months until the midterm elections. Democrats say they now have even more proof that running on Roe v. Wade is a winning message. They're highlighting last night's victory by Pat Ryan in the special election to represent New York's 19th congressional district. Ryan set the terms of the contest early on within an hour of the U.S. Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade with this TV ad that his campaign reportedly started preparing after Politico published that draft opinion in May. Pat Ryan graduated from West Point and risked his life in combat. He fought for our families, for our freedom. And freedom includes a woman's right to choose. How can we be a free country if the government tries to control women's bodies? That's not the country I fought to defend. Joining us now is Democratic Congressman-elect Pat Ryan of New York. Congressman-elect, first of all, congratulations. We should note you were running in in a battleground district. It's a swing district. Joe Biden narrowly, narrowly carried it in 2020. Um, Do you think abortion rights is as strong of a campaign issue for other Democrats who might be in similar districts? Thanks, Jake. I I think this was a referendum not only on choice, but really on freedom. I mean, we are seeing a multi-front attempt to rip away fundamental rights and freedoms. And of course, front and center was abortion rights, reproductive rights, but voting rights, uh, protecting our environment, my ability as a a dad to drop my my three-year-old and seven-month-old off at daycare and not worry that the same weapons I carried in combat are going to end up at their school. And, And so we're at a moment where I really think threats to our democracy, threats to our core freedoms are very much on people's minds, and we saw that in the outcome uh, here last night. We should note that you're an Army veteran that served two tours um, in Iraq. On your campaign site, you say you will, quote, fight to reestablish the protections guaranteed by Roe v. Wade. Um, We're a little more than two months out from the midterms. Can Democrats codify Roe v. Wade before possibly losing control of, of, of one or both chambers? We have to do everything that we can. This is an existential fight. I mean, these are fundamental rights and freedoms. So many millions protested and rallied and did everything that they could to secure these rights and to see them ripped away. I mean, we have to have all options on the table to figure out how to return these rights. And I think the willingness to say that clearly, strongly, and to really do that work uh, is what people desperately want to see. And, and we show that in the campaign. So now we have to deliver and certainly uh, that is uh, very much front and center for me as I uh, head down and start. As uh, There's an NBC News poll from earlier this week that asked voters their top issue heading into the midterms. The number one issue uh, in this poll was threats to democracy, followed by cost of living, jobs in the economy, immigration and the border, climate change, guns. And then there's abortion uh, at 8 percent tied with guns. Um, and yet you really made this a front and center issue. Uh, even if polling didn't suggest uh, that it that it would have been, did, did Democrats at the DCCC or, or the New York Party tell you don't talk too much about this? You should be talking about other issues. 
I think you win uh, in any endeavor uh, when you actually listen to people on the ground and as a leader, you amplify that. And what we heard and felt and saw in so many conversations, the number of people who were literally crying as we learned about the draft uh, um, opinion coming out, it was just heart wrenching and it and it, it called for real action and, and moral leadership. And I don't just, you don't see that in polls. <laughs> That's just listening to people on the ground and then stepping up and rallying people. And, and I think, you know, the other challenge in a poll like that is those issues are all interrelated. To me, threats to democracy include the fact that we're ripping away fundamental rights in, enshrined in our democracy, going back to our, our founding principles. I mean, when, when rights are being trampled on, Americans stand up. And, it, and I think it transcends a lot of the partisanship that we're certainly experiencing now. We saw that in Kansas. We definitely saw it last night. And, and I think we'll continue to see that. You think you got Republican votes on this issue? Absolutely. I mean, this is a this is one of the last, as you said, of the sort of toss up purple districts. I grew up here. My family's been here five generations. This this is a community that that is pragmatic, that wants results, that doesn't like the government telling them what to do in their private lives and their health care decisions, that doesn't like rights that they fought to secure being ripped away from them. And, and I think these the, these Supreme Court decisions, especially on both guns and on on uh, on Roe or Dobbs, I should say, struck a real nerve that's much deeper uh, than some of the other issues people are experiencing, and and kind of hit guardrails of democracy. All right, Congressman-elect Pat Ryan, Democrat of New York, thanks so much. Hope to have you back. We'll talk about a lot more, including uh, what needs to be done for veterans and how your service uh, informed your view on, on foreign affairs. Uh, thanks so much for being here. Congratulations again. Thank you, Jake. Up next, we head to Pennsylvania and Senate candidate John Fetterman's return to the campaign trail after suffering a stroke. What he has not done since his return. Stay with us. And our politics lead is a veritable or maybe I should say vegetable war of words in the closely watched Pennsylvania U.S. Senate race. Republican candidate Mehmet Oz's campaign is under fire. For another self-inflicted misstep, his campaign issuing a rather nasty, not to mention unscientific comment about Democrat John Fetterman's stroke, saying that Fetterman would not have had the health problem if he'd eaten more vegetables. This coming after Dr. Oz became the subject of mockery over his disastrous crudite video. And as CNN's Eva McKen reports for us from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, legitimate questions do remain about Fetterman's health. From Erie to Pittsburgh. Steel workers! Pennsylvania's Democratic candidate for Senate, John Fetterman, back on the campaign trail more than three months after suffering a stroke. If I'm your next senator to Washington, D.C., guess what? You're still going to have a senator that's going to be living across the street from your steel plant. Rallying members of the United Steelworkers Tuesday, Fetterman was on message, but often halting in his speech and occasionally dropped words mid-sentence. Being anti-union is anti-American. What is wrong with demanding for an easy, safe kind of their income, a path to a safe place for them to win, or excuse me, to, to work? 
Fetterman declined to answer questions from CNN and other reporters at the event. A campaign spokesperson telling CNN Fetterman is doing really well, walking five to six miles a day and following doctor's orders. They didn't say when the public would receive a status update from his physician about his condition. Instead, pointing to a June letter from his doctor that said Fetterman would return in six months for a checkup and noting a July interview with the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette where the 53-year-old said he had nothing to hide while acknowledging he at times struggles with hearing, may miss a word or slur two words together. It is one of the most common symptoms of a stroke. Uh, The slurred speech doesn't always indicate a problem with language processing. Sometimes it's simply a problem with pronunciation. In May, doctors attached a pacemaker with a defibrillator to Fetterman's heart to treat his cardiomyopathy, a heart disease that makes it difficult for the heart to pump blood through the body. In that same July interview with the Post-Gazette, Fetterman said he is working with a speech therapist. Fetterman's health has emerged as a line of attack by his rival, celebrity doctor Mehmet Oz. On defense recently over an April video about crudite aimed at highlighting grocery store prices, Oz's campaign releasing a statement Tuesday that said, if John Fetterman had ever eaten a vegetable in his life, then maybe he wouldn't have had a major stroke. Fetterman responding, I know politics can be nasty, but even then, I could never imagine ridiculing someone for their health challenges. Fetterman supporters at that union rally downplaying concerns over his health. I think that he's back fairly quick from it, to be honest with you. I think if it was, uh, you know, a bigger issue than, than what it is, he would actually absolutely be more open about it. A key question now is when will we see these two candidates debate? Oz has really made this a central focus. Fetterman's campaign telling me Fetterman is up for debating Oz, but has not yet committed to a date. Jake? All right, Eva McKinn in Pittsburgh in the great Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Thanks. Let's discuss. Uh, Charlie, let me start with you, a former uh, Republican congressman from Pennsylvania. I have to say, I agree with Fetterman. I I can't remember uh, a politician or a campaign in Pennsylvania mocking somebody's health challenges. He had a stroke. I mean, it's something we can talk about. It's certainly a a valid issue for any candidate. But to make fun of it like that, it doesn't seem like reading the room of Pennsylvania. Yeah, well, my advice to Dr. Oz is to not talk about vegetables anymore. Never utter the word (laughs) crudite. Nobody knows I didn't even know what that was. Until I didn't either. I thought it was crudite, I which I thought was a rock or like kryptonite. But, but nevertheless, <laughs> look, he, he's got to stop that. But having said that, there are legitimate questions about John Fetterman's health. Uh, many believe that he has understated uh, the, the severity of his situation. There's been a lack of transparency. And uh, being a, a U.S. congressman or senator is a very physically demanding job. And, you know, he has not agreed to any debates that I'm aware of so far. So there is legitimate concern about his health, but you shouldn't mock the condition or how he got there. And Casey, you were there at, uh, at we saw the Fetterman, Fetterman's uh, last event before he had that stroke. And again, yeah. just to underline this, nobody's making fun of it. Uh, we all hope him a complete uh, and quick recovery, et cetera. But yeah. you, you were there uh, and you see a difference. Yeah, I mean, there's, I think there's a very distinct difference. I mean, this, this is a candidate who prided himself on the way he interacted with voters. He was a very easy uh, conversationalist speaker, had no problem. I mean, I did an interview with him. He sure. talked to other reporters while he was there. He's not doing that anymore on the campaign trail. And, you know, look, I think, as is always the case with issues of candidates' health, the question is, are you capable of serving the people that you are running to represent, right? That is the important question. 
Um, and that is why it becomes a legitimate question. But like to your point, I've never seen, I mean, how many times have we all been in receipt of opposite, nasty opposition research suggesting someone is too old or senile or whatever, like whatever the problem may or may not be. I've never heard people just do it out in public like this. I mean, especially because... It was a written statement, too, which means right. yeah. they thought about it and yeah. had it approved. Right. What? So was the crew that has always seemed like <laughs> a tripwire for Oz. Um, and really, I mean, maybe it's more like a trapdoor because as a doctor, kind of yeah. the condescension exactly. toward... Fetterman, that basically the Fetterman campaign is going to take that and turn it around and say, he's talking about you. You, who, like me, didn't listen to your wife and go to the doctor, uh, are being mocked by Dr. Oz. That's why this has always been a possibility for Oz to go there. I'm surprised that he, that they decided to go there. Maybe it's a mark of a, a sense that they need to get tough on Fetterman, because Fetterman has been relentlessly going after Oz on social media, but it may be in a way that I think for the voters, the average voter is is not going to play well. But I feel like it was a, they were they thought they were trying to attack him or get at his health, but they did it in such a boneheaded way that it really backlashed. And especially for Dr. Oz, who is someone, you know, folks have made fun of some of the kinds of things he used to push on his shows. The quackery. The, the quackery. It was all before Congress. <laughs> exactly. So that's what it also, I think, reminds people. So let's talk about uh, the, the, the midterms in general, because, um, Abby, the Dobbs decision, which overturned Roe v. Wade, has reshaped the midterm elections, Democrats are arguing. You saw the interview we just did with the, the uh, New York congressman-elect, uh, Ryan, from a competitive district. Um, before the Supreme Court decision, Democrats were running about six points worse than Biden. Since Roe was overturned, Democrats are doing five points better than the president did in 2020. You just uh, saw the interview with Pat Ryan, who basically focused his campaign on a, a pro-abortion rights uh, message. Do you think that's what's happening here? And could this actually show momentum for Democrats? Look, I think if it were one data point, I would be like, OK, wait. But we're talking about a series of, of data points that seem to indicate that momentum is shifting uh, in the Democrats' favor. It's the Kansas referendum on abortion that was unexpected in a red state. It's the generic ballot that has moved pretty definitively to show that Democrats and Republicans are now head-to-head, and now this special election. Democrats needed two things going into this fall. They needed a miracle on gas prices, and they may be getting one because the gas prices have been coming down in a historic fashion. And they also needed uh, something to motivate the base. And the road decision definitely motivated the base. It puts them in a better position, but does it, you know, prevent them from losing the House? I don't think we know that just well, yet. But I would mention, you know, Ryan, actually, it wasn't just abortion. It was freedom. And as somebody who fought for the freedom of this country, and that is, if you look at Kansas, how people talked about it. It is the freedom to make your own decisions about your body. And if you look at a state, we're just talking about Pennsylvania. The Commonwealth. But where, yeah, okay. the, sorry. The Commonwealth. <laughs> no difference. I knew, of all people. But in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, where of the people who have yeah. uh, registered to vote post the Dobbs decision, two-thirds women. Yeah. Registering as Democrats. High uptick in men registering, also registering as Democrats. By the way, those are not Oz voters. Right. Yeah. You know, it's I, I think you hit on such a great point because <laughs> you're not wrong. <laughs> um, but your point is, I think, exactly the right one, because this is one of the, the places where Democrats, I think, are getting their messaging uh, right in a way that reaches the broadest swath of voters. Right. By making that freedom argument and making it less about the actual procedures and details of abortion. Republicans are actually doing 
the opposite. They're having to, in some, many of these red states, the laws are so draconian. They yeah. are just not where the public yeah. is. I mean, would the public support, you know, some sort of restrictions on abortion after 20 weeks with exceptions for rape and incest? My guess is probably, if you look in the numbers, it's, that's probably realistic, but that's not what we're talking yeah, about. That's it's six weeks. It's no know, exception. See, Republicans are now, I, I, always, I was the last pro-choice member of the House Republican Conference, so I know what I'm talking about on this. I used to warn these guys, you're playing with blanks right now, as long as there's a backstop called Roe v. Wade. None of these things become law. But once that backstop is gone, now you're shooting live rounds, and there are going to be consequences to these things, because these are not popular issues. And so this abortion issue certainly has given Democrats a new intensity and energy that they didn't have. Now, I, I still think they're going to lose the House, but I think this will mitigate some of their losses. You know, Republicans only have to pick up, what, five seats? So, and you cannot message your way out of reality. That's the yeah, problem for that's Republicans. Right. You cannot turn around a situation that people are seeing with their own eyes. And that was true of Democrats, by the way, too. They couldn't message their way out of inflation and have high gas prices. But once the reality shifts in their favor, you're in a better position. I don't think Republicans can change the abortion landscape right. in the next couple of years. I just want to, uh, Abby, I want to get your take on this uh, statement from Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. He's up for re-election this November. Uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci announced that he's retiring uh, in December uh, from decades and decades uh, serving uh, the American people, public health. People can criticize Dr. Fauci, and I'm sure there are decisions he made uh, that not everybody agrees with. But, you know, you can't doubt the fact that he's done his best to, to, to save as many lives as possible. Take a listen uh, to Governor DeSantis. And I'm just sick of seeing him. I know he says he's going to retire. Someone needs to grab that little elf and chuck him across the Potomac. Let me talk about just just to be clear here. The guy has a secret service detail because he gets yeah, death threats, real threats. And I, I'm going to put Charlie on the spot because we were just discussing this. The Republican base right now wants their candidates to be mean, to be tough. And that is what Ron DeSantis is serving up on a silver platter. But in this kind of political environment, there is a thing as too far. And I think that this is one of that's those not I mean, examples. it's violence. It's yeah. past mean and violence. Well, I, I cringed when I heard that. You know, I, I had the opportunity to deal with Dr. Fauci, and we all, he was a highly respe- respected professional. He was the guy who did the AIDS work in the day, yep. and, and I just can't imagine this man has been uh, beaten on so badly. It's Medal, of, Medal of Freedom from George, President George yeah, W. Bush. Thanks, I mean, one and all, for being politics. here. Zapping the brain with small electric shocks could help patients recover memory. That's next in our health lead. Stay with us. In our health lead, promising research about improving our memories as we age. A new study shows non-invasive brain stimulation with electrical currents could help improve memory. Let's bring in CNN's Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Sanjay, how does this work? Yeah, it's, uh, it's pretty, pretty interesting, Jake. I mean, <clears throat> this is basically using energy in the, in the form of electrical currents to try and change the brain. Um, this is relatively new research, Jake, and it's just been over the last several decades where they've figured out how to actually use non-invasive techniques to change or actually affect the brain, in large part because of the skull. I mean, every other organ in the body doesn't have bones surrounding it, so that's been one of the challenges. But now they use magnetic energy, they use sound energy, and electric energy to try and actually change the brain or synchronize the brain waves, which is what they're doing here. It's uh, called transcranial alternating current, They direct some of the energy towards uh, an area near the front of the brain over here, the prefrontal cortex, some further back, the parietal cortex. People wear a skull cap, like what you see there. It's non-invasive, so it doesn't hurt. You may feel a little bit of heat or a little bit of pressure. 
and they basically uh, sort of uh, target these waves called theta and gamma waves at those specific areas of the brain. Um, the, what, the, what the goal was, these were people over the age of 65, was to have them remember, memorize word lists as they were going through this 20-minute session to try and see how much of a difference it made in terms of the memory. That's a study. They basically had a group of people who did this, a group of people who had the skull cap, but did not get any of the, the specific energy directed at their brain, and they wanted to see the difference. And, and how promising is it? Well, I, you know, it's interesting. If you look at the results overall, again, small study, what they found was that people who had these specific waves, gamma waves, targeted at the front of their brain, 17 of the 20 in the people in the group actually did improve in terms of their longer-term memory. And people who had these other types of waves, theta waves, directed closer to the back of their brain, did have short-term memory improvement as well, 18 out of 20. It's early, Jake, and it's not even clear, does this memory that they have for wordless extend to other parts of their lives, or are they just getting better at remembering words? These are the types of trials that need to happen. But they could say definitively that based on the study, that type of transcranial current does make an impact on the brain. So the proof of principle is there, Jake. Let's hope for more. Dr. Sanjay Gupta, thanks so much. Coming up, the proposal that would force every hotel in one of America's largest cities to offer empty rooms to people who are experiencing homelessness. Stay with us. In our national lead, Los Angeles voters will decide on a proposal in 2024 on whether hotels will have to offer any vacant rooms to those people experiencing homelessness. But as CNN's Nick Watt reports, this is becoming a rather contentious debate. In Los Angeles County, more than 60,000 people are homeless on the average night. And more than 20,000 hotel rooms lie empty on the average night. See where this might be going? It's, it's just it's insane. Um, it, it isn't going to solve the problem. We think this is one part of the solution. By no means do we think this solves the homelessness crisis. But do hotels have a role to play? Of course they do. So the union he leads, which reps hotel workers, gathered enough signatures and Angelinos will vote on a bill that would force every hotel in town to report vacancies at 2 p.m. every day, then welcome homeless people into those vacant rooms. Honestly, would you check into a hotel knowing that the chance of your neighbor to the left or right is a homeless individual? Manoj Patel voluntarily rents some rooms to homeless people who are vetted and paid for by a local church, but he's against this bill that would make that mandatory. We barely are surviving, number one. Number two, we have to think of the safety of our staff. And number three, we're not professionally or any otherwise equipped with any of the supporting mechanism that the homeless guest would require. What services would be provided remains unclear, also unclear the funding, and hotels would be paid fair market rate. It's up to the city. I mean, they did it during Project Room Key. The pandemic-era program now winding down that inspired this bill by placing more than 10,000 people in hotels that volunteered. Sean Pigdelli among them. Well, first of all, it's a blessing. It's a, it's a great room. The technology is not up to par, but, you know, what technology do you have in a tent? This bill would also force developers to replace housing demolished to make way for new hotels and hotel permits would be introduced, as well as making every hotel from a Super 8 to the Biltmore 
accept homeless people as guests. I don't think that's a good idea. Why not? Uh, maybe for some, but you know, there's a lot of people with untreated mental health and some people do some damage to these poor buildings, man. This happened in Manoj Patel's motel. And she marked all walls, uh, curtains she burnt, thank God there was no fire, uh, even marked the ceiling. Opponents of housing the homeless in hotels fear this and fear tourists could be put off from even coming to LA. I wouldn't want my kids around people that I'm not sure about. I wouldn't want to be in an elevator with somebody who's clearly having a mental break. The idea that you can intermingle homeless folks with paying normal gas just doesn't work out. We don't want to head backwards into the segregated South, but that's kind of the language that they're talking about. There's a certain class of people, less than humans, animals they almost describe them as, to be honest with you. They don't seem to understand who the unhoused are. We're talking again about seniors, students, working people. That's who the voucher program would benefit the most. So about 18 months until this is actually on a ballot and expect plenty mudslinging between now and then. Some opponents have already told us that they think the union is pushing this bill just as a negotiating tactic for leverage. The union themselves tell us that is false. But the union says they want to hold the hotels accountable and make sure that the hotels play their part in tackling a problem that is, frankly, only getting worse. Jake? All right, Nick Watt in Los Angeles, thanks so much. The devastating flooding has left Texas and it's moving east. The water is rising so quickly in one state. School buses are being used to evacuate nursing homes. Stay with us. In our Earth Matters series, new evidence of the climate crisis in Mississippi, a flash flood emergency and dozens of water rescues, including this one, at a nursing home in the city of Brandon, CNN's Jennifer Gray is there. And Jennifer, the, the Brandon mayor, you tell me, says they've never seen this type of rain before, not even during Hurricane Katrina. Well, Jake, Jackson, Mississippi, right outside of Brandon, or Brandon, right outside of Jackson, this area received about 10 inches of rain in just three days. And if you take a look around me, you can see this creek. Uh, just as fast as the water rises, it begins to fall. But it's creeks like this one that can cause some catastrophic damage. These areas normally run bone dry, but when you get 10 inches of rain in just three days, this creek is responsible for uh, devastating this assisted living facility behind me where 42 residents had to be evacuated. Three feet of water was inside this facility earlier today. Now everyone is safe and accounted for. Uh, the director here said they can replace the stuff, but they are so happy that everyone is okay. Also in Pearl, Mississippi, we had water rescues. People had to be evacuated from their homes with nothing but the clothes on their backs, Jake, and more rain is to come. All right, Jennifer Gray, thanks so much. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and the TikTok at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. If you miss an episode of The Lead, you can uh, listen to our podcast from whence you get your podcast. It's just sitting there all two hours like a ripe melon. Our coverage continues now with Alex Marquardt uh, in for Wolf Blitzer right next door in the Situation Room. We all do things our own way, and since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. 